0: Well, uh, let me invite you to take your Bibles with me now, and we'll turn together this morning to Genesis chapter 11, and our reading is Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32 through the end of the chapter, so find your place there and stand with me for the reading of God's holy inerrant word, Genesis 11. ten through thirty two. Listen now, beloved, to the word of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was one hundred years old and begot Arfixod two years after the flood, and he begot Arfixod after he begot uh, Arfixod, Shem lived five hundred years and begot sons and daughters. Arfixad lived thirty five years and begot Salah. After he begot Salah, Arfixad lived four hundred and three years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived thirty years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived four hundred and three years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived thirty four years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived four hundred and thirty years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. After he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Rui lived 32 years and begot Sirug. After he begot Sirrug, Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sirrug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Searug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Shall we pray? Father, we would ask now with all of our hearts that you would send your Holy Spirit to attend the reading and preaching of this, your holy word. For we confess, dear Father, that if this were merely a human exercise, there would be no power to save or sanctify. But if you are present by your word and spirit and through the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, then you and you alone can save. So come, we pray. We come with humble but grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we return this morning to our study of the book of Genesis, this book of beginnings, where we come to understand, it seems, nearly everything that is foundational and fundamental to our faith as Christian people. And one of the most important lessons that we have learned so far in our study of Genesis about God is that God is not blind. He is not unaware of what is going on here on earth. He is not to be conceived of as some kind of distant or aloof deity who is disinterested in the affairs of men and in the goings-on here on earth. Nothing done here on earth by men and women is ever done truly in secret. Though God is in heaven, he looks down, we have read, and sees everything that we are doing here. He looked down and he saw Adam and Eve, a sin in the garden. He looked down and he saw Abel offer a better sacrifice than Cain. He looked down and saw Cain murder his own brother. God looked down and saw the violence and the sexual immorality prior to the flood, and he judged and destroyed the whole world. God looked down from heaven and saw Ham ridicule his father Noah. And most recently we saw that God looked down when brilliant men in Babel were constructing a centralized city and building a great tower to reach to heaven to make a name for themselves. And once again, we saw what we have seen before, that God will not allow man's plans to succeed, but he frustrates them. He upends and confuses and scatters. If man would seek to re enter the garden, they are forbidden. If they attempt to build a society without God, they are disrupted. And dear friends, look at history. Every great society that has ever been, save the church, has either come to an end or been brought to its knees, which all in reality is a gift. Augustine said of that, uh, that God looks mercifully upon men when he does not allow them to find lasting contentment in anything that is not him. God uh, looks mercifully upon men when he does not allow them to find lasting contentment in anything that is not him. If you are looking For lasting contentment in anything that is not God. In money, in sports, in relationships, in things. You can therefore fully expect God to prevent you from finding it. And it is his mercy to do so. God is judging human godlessness so that we might find our joy and satisfaction in him alone. It's what he's been doing from the beginning. But we must ask, is anyone listening? And does anyone care? Is anyone today hearing the voice of God in these stories? In the flood, in the Tower of Babel, in these judgments, in these disruptions? Is anyone but a small band of faithful believers even aware of these stories and of what they mean, and that they tell us that a far greater judgment still, an eternal judgment, is coming soon upon the human race. Oh, may we not be deaf to the meaning and the importance of these stories. Well, we come this morning in verses 10 through 26 of chapter 11 to the genealogy of Shem, the son of Noah, a genealogy that leads, of course, to Abram, the father of the faithful, the Bible will call him, the friend of God, the one through whom and with whom God would establish his gracious covenant. The genealogy then traces the ancestry of Abram back to Shem, The son of Noah, providing connecting links between Abram, the patriarch, and Noah, the second Adam, as we have called him. And the list of names, therefore, prepares the reader for the call of Abram, which we will find specifically in chapter 12, God's friend. Now, there are, I think, several things to be noticed about this genealogy. You may have noticed them already. First, we can see a very important difference in the duration of life before and after the flood. For we find now after the flood that human beings were not living nearly as long, indeed only about half as long, if that, as they had lived before the flood. And then after Peleg, human longevity seems to be cut in half once again. For we go from before the flood when some men in some cases lived some 900 to 950 years, even more uh, in one case, to 450 years or so after the flood, to just over 200 years in the case of Peleg, uh, verse 19. Nahor, uh, verse 24, lives only 119 years. So human life And lifespan has been cut dramatically. What accounts for this? It would appear that the two catastrophes, the catastrophe of the flood and the separation of the human race into nations, exerted a powerful influence in shortening the duration of life. The former, the catastrophe of the flood by altering the climate of the earth and the latter, the dispersing of the peoples by changing the habits of men. But while the length of life is diminished, you may have noticed that children were born proportionally earlier. Babies were now being born as men were in their 30s or so. And therefore, the human race, though men did not live as long as before, Uh, increased with sufficient speed so as to people the earth very soon after the dispersion. Now don't take these numbers as gospel, but it has been estimated that within 350 or 400 years after the flood, 11 generations having passed from Noah to Abram, that if every marriage had been blessed with eight children four boys and four girls, the 11th generation would include 12.5 million couples. You can do the math on your own. Or 25 million uh, individuals. If 10 children, five boys and five girls, were born to each family, then close to 300 million individuals might have been alive on the face of the earth at this time. And if so, it should not surprise us at all that when Abraham went about the ancient world after his call, that he should find tribes and towns and kingdoms seemingly wherever he went. Now, the second thing to notice is that unlike the genealogy in chapter 5, It is not mentioned in this genealogy that each person listed died. Now, that was a feature, you'll remember, of the genealogy in chapter 5. Now, of course they died, but this section has a different emphasis. Genesis 5 and 6 stress that death prevailed in the human race as sin spread rapidly and degenerated mankind. But Genesis 11 stresses a movement away from death and toward the promise. It stresses life and expansion, even though human longevity was declining. But the tone here is different. It begins with Shem, who was blessed, and concludes with Abram, who was called to receive the blessing. And uh, the line that possessed the blessing flourished, for centuries under God's good hand. But if we step back from the genealogy, if we take, as it were, a bird's eye view, uh, something rather astonishing, I think, uh, something even disturbing begins to reveal itself. If you observe that the list of names begins with the godly man, Shem, the son of Noah, Noah, who was the greatest and holiest man on earth, remember that his son Shem is the first person in the Bible, back in chapter 9, of whom it is said that the Lord was his God. Blessed be Shem, I should say, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, Genesis nine twenty six. And if you remember that the genealogy moves inexorably toward Abram and ends with him, the one called by God, the one whom, with whom God's covenant of grace was established. We might assume that we have here an unbroken line of godliness in every generation from Shem to Abraham. We might assume that every father and every son mentioned here preserved biblical religion faithfully passing on the faith of their fathers to their sons, unbroken for ten generations. You might presume that because Noah was their great ancestor, and that because Shem, their uh, father, stood at the head of their family history, that every man therefore taught the faith of Noah and of Shem to his children, and that every child received in his heart the faith and piety passed on to him. You might assume that the true biblical faith remained preserved for centuries, that it was embraced and transmitted and received from generation to generation, from Noah through Shem to Abraham. Now, it is a wonderful thought. It is a beautiful and appealing thought. But tragically, it is not so. Uh, Hold your place at Genesis and turn with me to Joshua, chapter 24. Joshua, chapter 24. This is near the end of the book of Joshua, near the end of Joshua's life. He knows he's about to die and go the way of all the earth. He gathers the elders and the leaders of Israel uh, to speak to them. He summons them before God. And in Joshua 24, verse 2, we read this, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus said the Lord, says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river, that is the Euphrates, in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river notice what it says that Terah the father of Abraham lived in old times on the other side of the river and served other gods that is to say they were pagans they did not worship and serve Yahweh but worshipped and served the gods and the idols and the pagan deities of their Mesopotamian neighbors. However godly and obedient Noah had been, however faithful and blessed by the Lord Shem had been, it is a terrible blight and commentary on their posterity, that a great part of it fell away into apostasy and away from the true worship of God. And here, dear friends, is the utter depravity and ingratitude of men's hearts. It is almost certain that Noah and his sons were still living when men began to fall away from faithfulness to the Lord. Now, the memory of the judgments of the flood would have been fresh in men's minds, having been taught to them by their fathers. That God once destroyed the whole world with a flood. That he preserved a single man and his family by grace. That men ought always to seek the Lord and live before him in obedience and faith. And walk in gratitude and reverence to him. But alas, men's memory is short-lived. The things of the Lord quickly disappear from his mind. He speedily turns to other concerns. He forgets the Lord and his ways. And he begins to walk according to the counsels of his own heart. And not according to the counsels of the Lord God. Have you not seen it? Have we not seen it in history? Do we not see it in our own nation's history? Godly ancestors are no guarantee of future faithfulness. Men and women quickly fall away when their hearts are not continually lifted up to God. In their hearts and souls, They begin to drift spiritually. And have we not seen it, beloved, in our own families, in our own churches, and in our own church, and in our own lives? This is how weak and frail the human heart is because of sin. This is how compromised it is in its integrity because of its fallenness. It will drift It will fall away. It will degenerate to false religion and superstition and idolatry unless God being gracious, we attend diligently to the heart and to our relationship with God. Unless we diligently attend to the things of God, to corporate worship, to the means of grace, to the observance of the Lord's day, to personal prayer and Bible study, to daily repenting of our sins and being renewed in grace. Unless we regularly do these things and teach our children to do the same, beloved, we are in great danger of drifting and of falling like men of old. Isn't it stunning how we see this repeated in history? There will be a great work of God, a great start for the people of God, a great blessing given by the Holy Spirit, a great turning in faith to Jesus Christ. But so often it seems the children, the children's children, or the children of the children's children, do not see the importance, do not feel the urgency, are not convinced of the necessity of the faith they saw in their parents. Now, we're not given here, admittedly, a play-by-play version of precisely what happened. But it doesn't take a tremendous amount of imagination. We've all seen it played out a thousand times. Church-attending people begin to waver in their own commitment to the Lord. They're influenced by society's values. They begin to compromise, first in little ways, then in larger ways. And pretty soon their lives look no different from the world around them. Many will take their children to church when they are little But very quickly, the children see exactly what's going on. Their parents aren't really serious about Christ. The parents aren't paying diligent attention to the things of the Lord. And the children begin to catch on. Pretty soon, they see that external religion is a veneer. It's something to be done, a show to put on cover up life's miseries and life's sorrows and disappointments. But they see that it lacks real power. Real power to change the heart. Real power to save. And so the children, it becomes even more marginalized in them. Maybe the next generation brings their children for baptism. But they're rarely in church. They may marry outside the faith further diluting biblical religion, further ensuring that the next generation are not brought up with any vital Christianity. And then within a few generations, that family looks exactly like the world. It embraces its values. It shares its superstitions. It worships and serves its idols. You may come to church on Easter and Christmas. But it's become pagan, utterly pagan, serving as Abraham's father did other gods. So parents, expectant parents, I want to confront you with this story this morning. And I want to impress upon your hearts that you have one single great calling with respect to your children. And it is to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It is to teach them to love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. To always set before them the word of the Lord. To pray with and for them. To teach them the doctrines of our holy faith. To have them in church morning and evening to avail yourselves of every possible opportunity for your children to be taught the Bible and to value the nurture and health of their souls and of their souls' salvation above everything else. For you are a Christian parent, and God has given you children, and he has given those children souls, precious eternal, everlasting, priceless souls that our Lord Jesus himself has told us are the most priceless things that exist in the world. And yet many of us do not live that way, as if the nurture and Christian care of our children's souls were the most important thing. We live as if education were Or sports were the most important, or music, or TV, or video games, or iPhones, or whatever. And we're afraid to offend our children, to upset them, to upend their behavior and their activities, and it keeps us from honoring the Lord with our parenting. Listen, dear friend, the most important thing you can do as a Christian parent is to teach your children to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to walk in his holy ways. Listen to the lesson of the genealogy. From infancy, they had been, as John Calvin put it, imbued with those elements of religious instruction that relate to the way God was to be worshipped. The reverence owed to his word and the severe judgments which remain for those who violate the things of God. All of this they knew. All of this they heard. All of this they understood and were raised in. And yet they were corrupted by pride. And in time they entirely fell away. What could possibly be more sobering Uh, Than that. No doubt Noah and Shem contended valiantly to maintain the ways of God among the faithful. No doubt Noah severely admonished, perhaps even raged with zeal and strength against the falling away. Men should have trembled at his look. Yet they were not moved by his scolding, however loud it might have been. They were moved by their own rushing headlong into sin and destruction. Beloved, let us learn from this how corrupt is the human heart. And should it really surprise us if such teachers as Noah and Shem could not prevail against the lust of the world, that we see in our day men's lust rushing to perverse forms of worship and ways of living, even against obstacles put before them, obstacles like sound doctrine, godly admonition, and faithful teachers who warn against apostasy. Beloved, learn the lesson of this text merely to have godly ancestors, godly grandparents, godly parents, shall never be enough, as great as it is. Each generation must embrace the word of God and the gospel for itself, and each must pass it on to their children, and each child must receive the word of God by faith. These men fell away in time. And on Judgment Day, it would not do to say they had Noah as their father. Isn't that enough to save? That's the first astonishing thing. The second that we see this morning is that though the men listed here deserved only that God should condemn them and erase them from memory and be entirely taken out of the world, Nevertheless, he will remember the promise that he has made. For God looks so highly upon his election, his sovereign choice, by which he separated this family from all peoples, that he would not utterly destroy them and allow them to perish on account of their sins. God is faithful to his promise Despite men's sins and failings, he will do what he has said he will do. For here, Abram, with him, comes the calling of a man and of his family and then of a nation out of utter obscurity, out of nothingness. Yes, even out of sin and of idolatry. And it is through that man And God's beginnings with him, that a family and a people and a nation and ultimately the whole world is to be blessed. Here are the rough, humble beginnings of God's gracious covenant with those ancient people who, though very imperfect themselves, will give to the world its Savior. And where was Abram when the call came to him? Living far away from the land of promise, living in Mesopotamia across the river, being raised by idol worshipers. He wasn't living in a godly family. Today we might say he wasn't raised in church. He was not steeped in the religion of Yahweh when the Lord appeared to him and called him. There is, in fact, no indication whatsoever in the story that he was actively seeking the Lord when he was called. He was an idol worshiper raised by idol worshipers when the Lord called him, when he was a sinner who served false gods, who lived among idolaters when the call of God came. That is why we call it Sovereign Grace, Beloved. And if you do not understand this, you have really not begun to understand grace. If you hear this and assume there must have been something in Abram that distinguished him, that made him worthy, something noble more deserving of others on the face of the earth, I'm afraid you have not yet begun to understand grace, nor have you really begun to understand the gospel, nor the Bible. For grace, you see, is undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor. It is God's kindness and mercy and love for those who have done nothing to earn it and who can do nothing to earn it. It is the undiminished goodness and generosity of God given to those who are by nature his enemies. It is God calling, not the righteous, but sinners. But everything in us rages against this. People must deserve what they get. People in this life get what's coming to them. You get what you earn, what you work for, what you deserve. Surely Abraham must have marked himself out in some way to deserve to be called and blessed by God. We have so narrowed and diminished the meaning of grace as to make it almost nothing. Grace in most modern reckoning is simply that an offer is given and you can take it or leave it. That's grace to the modern mind. But that's barely grace in biblical reckoning. Grace is to come to one who is not only sick, but dead, who is not only wandering, but utterly lost. Grace comes to one who is not only weak, but helpless. Grace comes to one in his lost estate and calls him and makes him alive and brings him into fellowship with God, even if that was the last thing on his mind. And the last thing that he was seeking the last thing he would have ever done or wanted if left to his own devices. Grace takes the weak things and makes them strong. It takes the foolish things and makes them wise. Grace takes the things that are not and makes them to be. Listen to Joshua 24.3 once again. When his father was serving other gods... I took your father. This is the Lord speaking. I took him. I made him mine. Now, did he leave? Yes. Did he go? Did he walk? Sure. But from the perspective of grace, God took him from the life that he was living. God took him to the place he wanted him to go. God took him to be with him. That is grace, not Abraham seeking, but God who comes calling. Now we'll have much more to say uh, next time. But beloved, this is why the gospel is such good news. It is the miracle of free grace to undeserving, fallen, lost, dead sinners. It is why we rejoice in the grace of God. Let me leave you with a question. How many people were alive on the face of the earth at the time of Abraham? We don't know exactly. It must have been in the millions, it would seem. And to how many of those men or women did the Lord God appear to call, to save, and to make a covenant? What does that say? but that grace is absolutely sovereign, that it comes to particular men, to a particular man of all the men of the earth. And so let it be known here at the very beginning, the gospel is by sovereign grace alone to save us from hell and what we deserve, to remove all boasting from men and to empty him of pride, and let the glory be to God alone. Let us bow before Him. And dear Father, uh, we recognize that we are uh, utterly incapable of coming to you unless. Your Holy Spirit draws us, and unless it is given to us from above through your Son, Jesus Christ, we acknowledge our inability, our native depravity, and we thank you, O Lord, from the bottom of our hearts that you would come to us in sovereign mercy. And pluck us out of the fire, as it were, and save our souls. Humble us, O Lord. Empty us of pride, of all human boasting. May it never be spoken among us that we might glory in the cross of Christ alone and in him who saves. In Jesus' name we pray.